I discovered the Clerks X DVD, which is, of course, the 10-year anniversary special of the seminal debut work of the film auteur Kevin Smith when I was maybe 18, about there, right before I enlisted. And in the movie Clerks itself, a guy named Dante works at a convenience store. And his best friend Randall works at the video store next door. And it was the trials and tribulations and the sort of day-to-day monotony and drudgery and grind of a minimum wage job where you feel like you're wasting your time somewhere. You feel like you could be doing more, but you don't know what. Because the characters in that movie had friends that went off to college, had friends that went off and did successful things. And... The main character of Dante is most acutely aware of this because he's dating a young woman named Veronica who's driven, who's focused, who knows she's going somewhere, knows what she's worth, but she loves the sad sack who spends his days behind a convenience store counter and she's trying to bring him along with her because she knows she's going somewhere special. And Dante knows he's going nowhere very fast. Veronica is desperate to get him enrolled into her college, to get a direction, to get a voice in his life, some sort of agency. And he's afraid to even look at himself to the point where he can know what he wants. Because if he knows what he wants, then he could fail. And that really goes into a lot of the insecurities of your 20s. Because while Dante is dating Veronica... He's having secret late-night phone calls to his ex-girlfriend, Caitlin Bree. She's his manic pixie dream girl, long before that term ever existed. With all of the good feelings that a girlfriend gives you, but none of that pesky hard work. All of the negatives are gone. There's no chance to screw it up because it doesn't really exist. But this is also because she has a fiancé. She's in the same space Dante is, where she's approached with a real legitimate prospect for her future and she's afraid so she's running away to a fantasy that fantasy for her is Dante and in your early 20s it's so much easier to live in the fantasy Caitlin offers him a look back into his past before he became just a convenience store clerk when life had more potential when there was more possibility in high school for him Veronica is a sobering look at who he is. It's a reflection. It's a mirror held up to his face, and it shows all of his faults, and he can't look the devil in the eye. He has to look away to Caitlin, because when she comes back into town to run away from her engagement and starts chasing after her fantasy, her memory from the past, her Dante, he wants to date her, and she tells him, It's just the shock of seeing me after three years. You'll get over it. He tells her, can we talk? And then she says the key word is talk. The conception of us dating is a lot more idyllic than the reality. Later on, Dante confesses that he isn't the type to make the change in his life. He's scared to move, to ask for what he wants. After Veronica learns of his indiscretions, She breaks up with him and yells at him and says, You don't know what you want. Throughout the movie, his catchphrase is, I'm not even supposed to be here today. 
he was called in on his day off by a boss that doesn't respect him into a job that he doesn't like. And he doesn't go where he wants to go, he doesn't tell the person no, he does it anyway. But there's a question in his statement when he shouts frustratingly to the world, I'm not even supposed to be here today. He's not supposed to be stuck where he is. He's not supposed to be languishing behind a convenience store counter. He's meant for more. He knows in his heart he's meant for more, but he's too afraid to go looking for it. He's not supposed to be there today. But where else would he go? In 1999, Kevin Smith released his fourth and one of his most controversial films called Dogma, where he explored his own Catholic faith. And as opposed to Clerks, this film is nothing but plot. And in Dogma, God saw fit to banish two angels to Earth for the entire span of human existence because one of the angels, Bartleby, felt sorry for the humans after the massacres of the firstborn in Egypt. Said massacres were performed by his best friend Loki, and Bartleby convinces Loki to put down the sword and say, we don't want to hurt these people, we don't want to kill anymore. But that very idea calls into question the omnipotence of God which by itself is blasphemous. So they're sent to Earth as punishment. And then they spend thousands of years living amongst the humans. And at the beginning of the movie, there is a demon named Azrael who decides he wants to unmake all of existence and finds a loophole within the Catholic dogma that allows Bartleby and Loki's sins to not only be forgiven, but a way for them to return back home to glory. And much like the previous act they did by laying down the swords would question the omnipotence of the Lord God and cause the universe to unmake itself. And there's this one scene that really stands out for me in the film where Bartleby and Loki go to the corporation headquarters for the company Moobies whose mascot is, of course, Mubi the Golden Calf. And it's a play on the biblical story of the Israelites when they were wandering the desert after they were ran out of Israel and they built a giant cow out of gold and they were worshiping that cow instead of worshiping the Lord. And in the movie, the mascot, the character Mubi, much like Mickey Mouse, has a line of comic books and movies and magazines and toys and it has created a false sense of morality it's a team of writers has said oh this is what movie believes and so since movie believes this you should believe this too but when bartleby and loki are in the boardroom of the movies corporation they read the riot act to the members of the board. They bring their sins out in front of each other. 
sins they've hidden from each other, from themselves, from the world. Just awful, terrible people. And Bartleby, while reading the riot act to the room, says, you have raised an idol that takes away worship from the Lord. And that was such a deeply profound message that I internalized it as a kid because I grew up not strictly Southern Baptist per se, but kind of the culture I was around. I remember when, when I was a kid, we would go to these deep Pentecostal churches and you'd see people like rolling around on the ground speaking in tongues. It was I was like 12 years old. And I turned to my uncle and he said, no, he's just feeling the spirit of the Lord. And I was like, all right, man. A lot of my first initial exposure to the Christian faith was kind of a, a harsh sort of Southern Baptist viewpoint of it, right? Because I think it's very malleable, the Christian faith, right? There's basics that all of the same ones hit. Basics being Jesus loves you, God is love. God sent his only son to die for your sins, that sort of thing. But the specifics tend to differ depending on the local population. And so that same idea plays at the socioeconomic level too, from what I've seen. Churches at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale are more concerned with individual sin, individual actions. What are you doing? that is destroying your life specifically and how can you not destroy your life and the lives of everyone around you and churches in the higher end of the socioeconomic scale seem to be more charity based more broad scale action from my perspective from my experience from what i've seen seem to be more focused on helping the poor spreading the good news of the gospel and less focused on how individual actions are destroying individual lives within the congregation itself. And I have this theory that I don't know if it's true, but it's a theory that if you're at the higher end of the socioeconomic scale, you've probably got a lot of basic things figured out. You figured out how to maintain a household and maintain employment and not fall into the many traps that destroy entire societies. Because from what I've seen, the, the churches in the lower income neighborhoods present much more of a hellfire and brimstone perspective because people at that level live in a hellfire and brimstone life, right? That is to say, when you live at the poverty line, life is harsh. And so to speak to that harshness of life, the local churches in those populations seem to spread the good news of the gospel from that approach, right? It is a harsh version of Christianity, right? One of the many problems of poverty is a lack of knowledge on something. This doesn't mean that anyone is a better or worse person. This means no one taught them what they were supposed to do and the reasons behind it. There was no example of how to behave. And so in the effort to serve the local populations the best the church will focus on individual actions more and the many things that cause people to be unsuccessful therefore the hellfire and brimstone's purpose is to keep them away from the pitfalls 
that can destroy them and keep them from living a good life, the life that the Lord wants them to have. And that was kind of the background I came from, was those sort of deeply Pentecostal Southern Baptist places. Like, I never saw any snake biters, but I heard plenty of stories, you know, from my dad. And there were times when I was so angry, being mad that life is unfair. Of course life is unfair. Why would it be fair? That's ridiculous. And it's a heck of a thing when you come to the realization when you're so angry at God. And then he says to you, hey, well, where were you when I made the world? Right. And that's kind of a general catch-all I use for whenever life doesn't make too much sense. I think, oh, where was I when he made the world? So when I left for the army, I took that sort of faith with me, right? Like after I kind of made peace with the Lord, I remember reading the book of Revelation <laughs> when I was waiting to go into the chow hall in basic combat training, right? Because, you know, we we're all going to Iraq and I thought, oh, well, <laughs> let's see what matches up with what. And then I met my wife and... She uh, was raised Catholic, and she has just an endless network of well-adjusted, lovely, amazing Catholic family members, right? Oh my God, they're the best people. So I started going to Catholic Mass with her. And the funny thing about Catholicism is that Catholicism is baptism if you subtract blind rage, add guilt, and then divide it by beer. That's Catholicism. <laughs> I mean, it's more complicated than that, but they're pretty close, right? They're both kind of hierarchical, rule-based, strict religions, right? They have standards and they expect you to live up to them, you know, which is part of the game. Of course you do. And I got confirmed in the church during the pandemic, actually, which was terrifying. <laughs> and, and not for, you know, the religious implications of it, because... It was right after those first couple shutdowns were over, right? We were all just kind of poking our heads out again, you know? So this was the first time I'd been inside a building that wasn't my house with people that weren't my wife, right? And I'm just, like, terrified, you know, because in March, I thought the world was going to end. <laughs> so up to there in April, like, what are we doing here? But, you know, it was okay. Fast forward 18 months later and the lord blessed me with an epiphany and it's been an intense period of self-reflection for me right which you don't normally get very often so i'm kind of looking at this as a blessing but also too as you're working through stuff sometimes you don't respond to people the best because they've said things to you they've done things to you whatever and you act less noble than you wish you did so I had this realization that my anger, my anxiety, I'm building an altar to my anger and my anxiety, and that takes away worship from the Lord. But it's easier to hold on to all that old anger and pain and hurt, right? Especially when you don't feel like there's ever any justice for what happened to you. So in your heart of hearts you think oh the only person that will ever acknowledge that they hurt me is me right and with that at the very least i'll know i can admit to myself that they hurt me right and i can hold on to that and that's the only justice i'll ever get and that rots your soul from the inside right you're laying that at an altar and you're worshiping 
your sense of injustice and that takes away worship from the Lord, right? And once I had that theory, that idea, everything just went down about 90%. And lately, last couple of days, whenever I think about something someone said, something they did, and then I get all worked up and I'm like, how could they? And you know, it's not fair and blah, 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 blah. I think to myself, focusing on the hurt is building an altar to it and it takes away worship from the Lord. And the rest just kind of makes sense after that. It takes all the emotion out of it, right? I can deal with things in a logical manner and you can sleep at night and you can move on. And that summation of the first commandment of the Lord our God, when he said, you shall have no other gods before me, that brilliant real world modern day example that the line Bartleby speaks in dogma meant the whole world because in our modern day life it's so easy to get wrapped up in things and painful things and outrage and the bleak dystopic world we live in it's so easy to focus on your hurt it's so easy to focus on your rage and that's not good that's not healthy don't dwell on bad stuff that does not mean do not address bad stuff you should address bad stuff process it and deal with it but dwelling on it means you're lost in it you're stuck in the tall grass and you can't find your way out and to dwell on bad stuff takes away focus from good stuff dwelling on bad stuff will kill you eventually It'll destroy you, if not physically, then emotionally. And the, one of the many reasons why that's the first commandment from the Lord our God is because God is the ultimate good stuff. And God wants us to be happy. God wants us to not be in pain. God wants us to worship him, of course. And to dwell on the bad stuff, to dwell on the pain, takes away worship from God, and it ultimately destroys us. All it does is hurt us in the end. God doesn't want that. And that's what dogma meant to me. Anyway, that's all for me today. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back next Monday morning at 0700 with a television show that meant something. <laughs>